Good morning, everyone. <sighs> Take a deep breath. Um, let's pray, and then we'll dive into kind of the deep end and go fast, maybe. Except I don't do fast until maybe like one in the afternoon. So we'll see what happens. So please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this morning that you've given us, um, the crisp air and transportation to get here, Lord, and a building to meet in, and these sweet ladies. Thank you for putting us in a body, your body, Lord, that we can love and serve one another. Lord, I do pray that this time would be beneficial. I pray that my words would be clear and that they would honor you and that they would be a help to each one of us. Lord, you are a good and faithful God, and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so my first thing, I'm going to start with a disclaimer, which I always do when I teach this. Um, lest I get in big trouble for being a plagiarist because a plagiarist is somebody who copies other people's work and doesn't give credit. If you give credit when credit is due, then you're just a researcher. So I'm a researcher, <laughs> and this is the book, primarily, um, which is Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. I know we have it on the book table, um, and it's... To me, it's one of the best resources of just kind of looking at the different aspects of peacemaking. Um, we, you have, these are back on that table. And this is just a handy thing to keep in your Bible that is this book kind of condensed in this piece of paper. Um, I'm not going to go through this. I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but... If, if you're involved in conflict, I would recommend you get this book. And it, it's, it just has, it's a useful tool in the back. It's even got kind of a, just a breakdown of what do you do if, sort of. Because the thing that the older I get, the more I understand. Every situation is different. There's always kind of the well, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? And what if, what if they do this? And what if... So these are principles um, that should help, but I, I've been in enough conflict in my life to know there's always little nuances that just make your head spin. So there's, there's the disclaimer. So on your handout, here is the first thing I'd like you to write. The definition of a conflict is a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desire. I'll say it again. A difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desire. And I'm going to rattle off the four primary causes of conflict. I don't know if you want to try and copy these down. You probably not. 
Um, there's misunderstandings that resulting from poor communication, differences in values, goals, gifts, expectations, interests, or opinions, competition over limited resources such as time or money, and then many, probably if not all, by sinful attitudes and habits that lead to sinful words and actions. So it's misunderstandings, differences, competition, and then just plain old sin. I mean, and you could probably just say sin, and, and you cover it. One of the things that I think is the most important thing to remember is on your handout, and it's the next quote. And this is from Sandy. See conflict as a stewardship issue. Stewarding means viewing conflict not as an accident or an obstacle, but as an opportunity. Stewarding means focusing not on specific results, but upon dependent, faithful obedience from a heart of worship that wants to glorify God. I think that sums up what, how we want to view conflict. And I think you could cross out conflict and put in suffering or trials. We need to maybe just cross out conflict and say life. We need to see life as a stewarding issue. God has given us this life to steward, and how are we doing with that? So conflict started. We see, we see it in Genesis 3. Then we see the first murder, and sin and pain and conflict are going to continue until the Lord returns. We know there's conflicts, okay? There's fights and quarrels in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. How about social media? If you guys, okay, I told the Thursday group this too. So if you want to know about conflict and you, you're saying, well, you know, life seems okay. There's not that conflict okay read the newspaper or just go if you have the next door app okay read the comments people fight over the dumbest things one that just struck me as kind of comical was somebody said try this new barbecue place it's the best the next person, <laughs> I'm not kidding. The next person said, well, I like, which actually this person is correct in my opinion, <laughs> Little Miss Barbecue over by the airport. It is the best barbecue in the whole wide world. And that's what they said. The person who said they like the new barbecue place then piped in with, well, to each his own. And then, I mean, this is over a barbecue restaurant. And I'm just like, oh, so it's everywhere. So if, if, you're, if you're thinking life is just grand and there's no conflict, go to social media and take a peek. But you know what? Why We shouldn't be surprised. We should probably be more surprised when there's not conflict over things. Because we live in a fallen world. We live amongst fallen people, and there is sin. James 4 says, one, verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? 
Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Pleasures, another word, would be desires. Isn't it your desires? Isn't it my desires? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And we're not, as the church, immune. Becoming a Christian didn't mean that conflict would disappear. But as believers, we are given new abilities from the Lord to live in a way that pleases God. We need to remember the gospel. So there are numerous commands in scripture that are directed to believers to live at peace. And the scripture references are on your sheet. I'm just going to read a few. The one that I remember all the time, try to, is Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. My job is to be at peace. Okay. Um, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. I'm just going to go through a few. Live in peace. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 talks about preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Second Timothy 2, 22 says, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We are called to pursue peace as far as it depends on me live at peace with all men and one kind of shorthand way to remember this is what did Matthew say was the greatest commandment or what did Jesus say it's in Matthew sadly um and it boils down to love God love your neighbor when he was asked what's the greatest commandment you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So just remember, love God, love your neighbor. That will help. And again, in order for us to live at peace, in unity, and be like-minded, we need the gospel. We need to constantly remind ourselves of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. We also need to remember Philippians 2, 12, and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Part of being a peacemaker is working out your salvation. That is, you know, being a peacemaker is part of being saved. Um, that is part of the sanctification process. But it's not me just pulling myself up by my bootstrap saying, okay, I'm going to work out my salvation right now. No, don't forget verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's think about ourselves. Ask yourself these questions. Are you the kind of woman who stirs up trouble? Or are you the kind of woman who diffuses situations? Do you provoke, push buttons with your friends, your parents, your coworkers, your husband, your children? I'm not advocating that you just be a clam and run around agreeing with everything under the sun. 
but what kind of lady are you? Paul Tripp, in his book, War of Words, asked some questions to help examine the fruit of our communication. He says, do you leave others encouraged, hopeful, and loved? Do your words lead to forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace? Does your communication impart wisdom and encourage faith? Or do your words lead to discouragement, division, condemnation, bitterness, and foolishness? So next on your handout are some preventative verses that are listed. Choking. <laughs> um, it's our theme verse for Wellspring, Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We need to guard our hearts. Proverbs 10.19. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. And those verses and Proverbs are, there's just a lot that deals with our speech. Um, Proverbs 18.2, the tongue has the power of life and death. Our words can build up or tear down. Um, I'll read one last one from Proverbs. Proverbs 26.17 through 23. I, the picture is so... I, I, it, I love this picture. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. And I have the picture of the rangy, scary dog, me holding it by the ears, and it's obviously going to bite me. Um, that's what it is to meddle in somebody, a quarrel not our own. And if you've had that happen, that's what it feels like. They just grab the dog. Or I just grab the dog and I'm holding it by the ears. What am I expecting? Verse 18 says, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Those are pictures of somebody stirring up strife and causing trouble. Romans 14, 19 says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That is a command. We are to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. We are called to be peacemakers. And I just want to encourage, if you're in a place where you're, you kind of know trouble's coming, First Peter is a good book of the Bible to put your nose in. Um, that and I'll, I'll just read this, and it was from a commentary. I don't know which one, so I can't give credit, but I didn't write this. Um, this book was written to encourage suffering believers in Asia Minor to stand firm for Christ in the midst of persecution. When we're in the midst of persecution, whether it be from friends or family or enemies, 
our response can be and cause strife and trouble. It was written during the persecution of Christians under Nero's reign. The intent of this letter was to strengthen believers in the midst of the suffering and persecution they were facing. Peter's message continues to speak to modern believers, reminding us of our heavenly hope and and eternal inheritance in the midst of our sufferings. And I want to encourage you, if you're struggling with being contentious, go back and re-listen to Melissa James's message on um, Proverbs 14.1. And she had the, your, your homework, that she, or no, the fill-in-the-blank that she gave you. This is great because she gave how to fight contention. And she gave, that was on page, is it? Now I can't find it. I had it. Oh, here we go. On page six, fight contention. Okay, contention is just being a troublemaker. Remember God's character. Always think the best. Don't underestimate your own sinfulness. Ask the Lord to show you what pleases him in your speech and what does not. Cultivate a heart of thankfulness. Continue to look in scripture for instruction in God-honoring speech. If you're struggling, her message was, it was out of the ballpark. So um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. So now back on your handout, here's our definition of peacemaking. Responding to conflict biblically. So, responding to conflict biblically. And remember a conflict, you've got it written at the top of your page, a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. So, responding to a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires biblically. So, we want to respond biblically. That's what God has called us to do. So we're going to look at two different aspects of peacemaking. First, when I'm the offender, when I have sinned, when it's my sin, what do I do? So I want to start by reminding us that there are what Jay Adams has called heart sins. And these are the ones that don't grow into full-blown sin against another. There are sins like lust or envy or covetousness. These sins need to be confessed to God. Okay, so if I'm coveting something, I don't need to go tell you, hey, I'm coveting your fill-in-the-blank. I need to confess that to God. Okay, so if if it stays within my heart, now I may need to go to a friend and say, you know, I'm really struggling with coveting. Will you help me? But I don't necessarily need to go to the person and let them know that I'm coveting um, or envious of them. Here's the biblical pattern. It's to confess your sins to as wide of an audience that you have sinned against. So if I'm thinking sinful thoughts about someone, but it doesn't grow into full-blown sin, I confess it to God. On the other hand, if I say something unkind to 
or about that person, then I need to confess to God and to the other person. And also another little reminder, there's a big difference between a mistake and sin. If you make a mistake, you say you're sorry. When you sin, you seek forgiveness. So here's some counterfeit confessions. I'm sorry. No. I lied to you. And I come, I lied to you. I'm sorry. You can hear. All that does is expresses a feeling. It asks nothing of the other person. How about an apology? I want to apologize. Well, what is an apology? It's a formal justification or defense. So if I come, I want to apologize to you. What I'm, and this kind of technical, but this is on my side, okay? But if I do that, I'm just giving you a defense. I lied to you because if I told you the truth, you'd hate me, okay? We want to seek forgiveness. How about if I say, please forgive me if, but maybe perhaps. So example, I always love this one. Please forgive me if I hurt you, but you were being unreasonable. <laughs> I like that one. <sighs> and, you know, again, go to, go to the social media because that's where some, I, I cringe when I hear the politicians seek forgiveness. Uh, well, they don't seek. <sighs> it's terrible. It's just, you know, here I've done all these horrible things. I'm really sorry. And I'm thinking, you are sorry. Um, how about this one? I'm sorry if I hurt you, but you were difficult to get along with. I mean, that's kind of sometimes what we do. So when I'm the offender and I want to do this biblically, how do I confess my sin? Immediately. When you realize you've sinned, you want to confess your sin to the person, first to God, but then horizontally, immediately. Matthew 5.23 says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So, when I've sinned, I want to confess. I want to confess to God. And that means I agree with God. I'm saying the same thing as God. I'm calling my sin, sin. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then I need to repent. I need to change I need to turn from my sin, and I need to go. I need to go and seek forgiveness. And if I'm afraid to go and tell you, hey, I've sinned, pray and ask for God's help. And on your handout are the seven A's of confession. And this comes right out of Peacemakers. Um, the first thing, address everyone involved, like what we talked about. If I've just sinned against my friend, 
I don't need to grab my whole small group. Now, okay, let me be clear. So if I've sinned against my friend just one-on-one, I need to just address her. But let's say I'm in small group and I've sinned against her in front of everybody. I need to, as best I can, haul everybody together and seek their forgiveness. Sometimes we need help figuring out, okay, what do I need to do? We can always ask others for help. How do I handle this situation? But we want to address everyone involved, all of those whom you've affected. I want to, as we said earlier, avoid if, but, and maybe. Do not excuse your wrongdoing. Admit specifically both your attitudes and actions. Acknowledge the hurt. This is where you can say you're sorry. I am, please forgive me for saying those unkind words to you. I am really sorry that I did that. That's okay. But say, will you please forgive me? Um, Accept the consequences, such as making restitution. If I've stolen money from somebody, I need to pay it back. And alter your behavior, change your attitudes and actions. And depending on the relationship, it may be even saying, you know, I'm really going to work on being more kind in my speech. Will you help me? Um, And ask for forgiveness. That's key. Remind yourself of the gospel. You can change and be more like Christ. And the reason you can do it is because of what he has done. Confession is saying to another, you're right. I did wrong you. I did sin against you. It's admitting that what's been charged is true. In the final analysis, true confession is agreement with another that is in agreement with God's word. Stick entirely to your own sin when you're seeking forgiveness. That's critical because it's real easy to do the, well, I got angry at you. Please forgive me. But it's your fault because you are being a jerk. I mean, that's not, that is not seeking forgiveness. So that's when, when I realize I've sinned, okay? But what about if someone comes to me and tells me that I've sinned, and I agree? That's pretty easy, okay? But a reminder, be approachable. That's important in our everyday relationships, especially those in our homes, our workplace, our church, our small group, our discussion groups. Be approachable. And this is on your handout. If someone comes to you and says, hey, you've, you've, you've sinned, and you're like, oh, you're right. Thank them for coming to you. It's not easy. Ask them to forgive you. Confess your sin to God. Thank the Lord for his mercy to you in revealing your sin and for paying the price for, for that sin. And then repent. We need to change. Now, it gets a little bit trickier if somebody comes to me and tells me I've sinned against them and I don't agree. And this quote from C.J. Mahaney's on your handout, and this was from his book on humility. 
Don't be put off when a friend's observations may not be 100% accurate. I found that there's truth to be gleaned at times even from an enemy's critique. Humility doesn't demand mathematical precision from another's input. Humility postures itself to receive God's grace from any avenue possible. Now, if you guys are anything like me, it's that mathematical precision that gets me every time. Because if somebody comes to me and they say, well, do you remember on Tuesday when you said that to me? I said it on Thursday, so you're wrong. (laughs) I like the mathematical precision part. That one busted me. Um, When somebody comes, we need to evaluate. And sometimes it does take some time to think it through whether or not, you know, you see merit in it. Okay? Jerry Ragg, in his book, Exemplary Spiritual Leadership, says in his chapter on criticism and how to deal with it, and I think having our sin pointed out feels like criticism, and I thought these were some helpful tips that he gave. Learn how to listen. Don't just hear, but listen by showing genuine interest in what's being communicated. Ask questions when clarity is needed. Okay, now this is where I have to be careful because be careful, however, that questions are not an attempt to divert attention from the central issue being raised. That's me. Let's see. I'm going to try and divert attention by asking you some questions like, well, did it happen in the morning or the night? (laughs) Did it happen a year ago? Have I ever done it before? Uh, Okay. Um we can say, please help me understand, or please be patient with me, and tell me again what the issue is. There's kind ways of doing it, and then there's the sinful way. Um, Godly responses are to listen without interrupting or forming snap conclusions. It's listening without sitting there thinking, well, here's my defense. Here's why I did what I did. Um, Don't attack the messenger. One question must be, Lord, how can I learn from what this person is saying? And again, even if you don't agree with what that person is saying, and sometimes this is in our very close relationships that this can happen with friends or family, um, and, and they'll come, you can still thank them for coming to you. Even if you don't agree, you can be thankful that they cared enough to say something. You may want to ask for time to consider what they said. You can say you're sorry that you hurt them. Um, You may want to ask others to help you see your sin. That can be really fun, right? Um, Especially if somebody's talking with you about an attitude or a tone. You can ask for time to consider what they've said. Pray about it. Ask the Lord to show you if there's merit in what they are saying. God will do that. And then follow up with them. Don't tell them, let me think about it and then run and hide and move to Tennessee. You know, don't do that. Okay? 
Do you view the people in your life as instruments in the hand of God? Because I believe somebody coming like that, they are an instrument in God's hands that he will use in your life. Now, here's where, again, it is a little tricky if you don't agree. Jay Adams says, one must never confess a sin what he is not sure biblically is sin. Nor should he confess to sins that he does not believe he has committed, merely in order to appease another who has charged him with wrongdoings. Confession must be the genuine, heartfelt conviction of the repentant confessor. And that's, like I said, that's where it can get a little bit difficult, is if you're not seeing it, and they're telling you, here's where you've sinned. It's, it's wrong to just say, okay, well, please forgive me. And that's where, please forgive me if, you know, comes in. You throw in the if, perhaps, but, or maybe. Um, I think it's appropriate, though, to take time to, to um, pray and, and consider if there's merit, and then go back. If there's not... It may be just saying, you know, I, I'm not seeing this, but I will continue to pray, okay? So what about, now we're going to switch gears again. What about when I've been offended? Somebody has sinned against me. They've come to me, and they've asked me to forgive them. What's required of me? And another reminder even if they don't ask forgiveness perfectly, okay, maybe they say, I'm sorry, and they don't say, will you please forgive me? Um, or maybe they throw in an if or a maybe or a but, but they're really seeking my forgiveness in their attempt. Maybe it's not that mathematical precision I would like, but they're seeking forgiveness. What do we do? We grant them forgiveness, okay? Matthew 18, 21 through 35 is the key passage. If you, And we're, we're not exactly there yet, but I'll just say it. If you're struggling to forgive, put, put your face in Matthew 18 and read the parable of the unmerciful servant and remind yourself what God has done for you. Um, and I... I'm going to go ahead and read it. Um, then Peter came and said to him, that's to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And remember, that's like double plus one what the law required. So Peter was kind of, as Peter does, which Peter's like one of my Bible heroes because he just kind of gets in trouble a little bit. So I understand that. Um, but he's being really generous. Like, okay, Lord, I'm really going to be a big forgiver here. What do you think? And what does Jesus say? He says, I, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Okay, so mathematical precision at 491 times I'm done I'm not forgiving you again no what Jesus was saying is unlimited forgiveness 
And then he goes on and says, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents, and that's like an unpayable debt, was, was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Remember, it's an unpayable debt. He can't pay it back. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave, and this is kind of the picture of us if we're not forgiving, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. That's like six months worth of wages. So it is a debt, okay? And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. He could essentially repay him. It would take a while. Here's what that guy does. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So then, so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. We, as believers, have been forgiven an unpayable debt. I could never, I can't live a hundred million lifetimes to earn God's forgiveness, okay? Yet, and I, I always, I, I like the word pictures. I see myself with my huge big bag of sin dragging me down and then going and finding someone else. But God's taken that, that big bag of sin and now I'm going to go find somebody else, and I'm not going to forgive them. That picture haunts me. Luke 17:3 is the parallel passage to this, and it says, "Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, and returns to you seven times saying, "I repent, forgive him." And the reason I want to point this out is the next verse. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. I need faith to be able to forgive the way that the Lord has forgiven me and to be a good forgiver. I need to ask God's help. So what's my attitude supposed to be towards someone who has sinned against me? It's humble, gentle, and patient 
I want to read Ken Sandy's definition of forgiveness. To forgive someone means to release from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. Aphemi, a Greek word that is often translated as forgive, means to let go, release, or remit. It often refers to debts that have been paid or canceled in full. Charisme, another word for forgive, means to bestow favor freely or unconditionally. This word shows that forgiveness is undeserved and cannot be earned. As these words indicate, forgiveness can be a costly activity. When you cancel a debt, it does not just simply disappear. Instead, you absorb a liability someone else deserves to pay. Similarly, forgiveness requires that you absorb certain effects of another person's sins and release the person from liability to punishment. That's precisely what Jesus did at Calvary. He secured our forgiveness by taking on himself the full payment of our sins. Remembering what he did to purchase our forgiveness should be our greatest incentive to release others from the penalties they deserve. Again, if you're struggling to forgive, spend time in Matthew 18. So why do we forgive? Well, one simple reason is it's a command. I want to read another quote that I think is helpful. How often have I wasted precious time by revolving in my mind all the aggravations of the injurious treatment to myself while I am forgetful that every day I have offended God in much greater degree? Forgetful also that I have daily received from him such tender mercies as might make me forget all the mischief that my fellow creatures could do to me. Again, when I think of the debt that God forgave, my sin was against a holy God. Somebody else's sin against me is sinner against sinner. But God, God's holy. He's sinless, and he forgave. How can I not forgive? Um, so what about when someone else is offending? Okay, They're sinning against me, and they don't seem to be aware of it. So again, it's a little bit harder. Um, Jerry Bridges gives some helpful things to remember when dealing with being sinned against. We need to remember a firm belief in the sovereignty of God. Think of Joseph and his brothers. Um, though the actions may be sinful in themselves, think of Joseph's brothers. God intends them for my good. Genesis 50:20 says, "As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good." Remember, a diligent pursuit of brotherly love that covers a multitude of sins and does not keep keep a record of wrongs. Pray that God will enable you to grow in love. Love is not easily angered. And a humble realization that 
in comparison to my brother's sin against me, I am the 10,000 talent debtor to God. That helps me to be able to forgive. So we have some options when someone is sinning and they're not aware of it. I can choose to overlook the sin. And there are some offenses that should be overlooked. Remember, Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. 1 Peter 4.8 says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. That should be our attitude. Our heart should be to cover sin. But sometimes the other person's sins are too serious to overlook. And again, the peacemaker gives some suggestions how to make that determination. And these are on on your sheet. Is it dishonoring to God? If someone who professes to be a Christian is behaving in such a way that others are likely to think of less of God, his church, or his word. As a professing believer, if I'm dishonoring God, I, I would hope someone would come to me and and talk with me is it damaging your relationship anything that has disrupted the peace and unity between two christians must be talked over and made right hebrews 12 14 says make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy is it hurting others directly might be child abuse or drunkenness or drunk driving or indirectly by an example. Let's say if I am speaking poorly about my husband, that is a bad example to the other ladies in the church. Um, Somebody needs to come to me. Is it hurting the offender? Is, Is what that person is doing, is hurting themselves? We need to go. These are some good questions to ask. Galatians 6.1 instructs us, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Gently. Um, if sin doesn't appear to be doing serious harm, it may be simply best to pray that they will see their need for change without being confronted. But if, on the other hand, it is dragging them down, think we need to go and we need to help and we need to we need to be instruments in God's hands in that way we need to be careful we're not the fourth person of the trinity if you need to go seek counsel if you're not sure should I go should I not go if you go ask someone to help you do your best to flatten out the details so that the other person isn't aware of who you're talking about um, because it then it can become gossip something else to consider is this a pattern or is it a one-time thing and it might help you as you think through whether or not you should go if you were the one doing what that person is doing would you want someone to come say something to you is it loving not to go If you have something to gain, you need to really check your motives. 
Think about your timing. If you know the person's exhausted, that's not the best time to have that conversation. Um, and my husband advises, don't have a 30-minute or 60-minute conversation when you have five minutes. It doesn't go well. So make sure you allow for enough time. And the other thing, too, is make sure you're talking about sin and not a preference. And again, that can get a little, you know, sometimes we think something is really a sin when in reality it's a preference. Um, so, so pray about it. Ask the Lord, you know, look to scripture. Is this really sin or is this just, I, I don't like it. Um, so if I decide I need to go. Okay, I've come to the place where I love this person. I, I maybe, well, um, I'm going to go. I need to go say something. Um, what do I do? Here are some verses, um, and these are on your handout, the, the references. Remember, Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Um, let me, Galatians 6, 1, and I'm not going to read them all. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that means you who are Christians, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. So I've determined I need to go. Now I need to think through, okay, did I contribute to this problem? And if I did, then I need to seek forgiveness first, okay? And it may mean waiting to address the other person's sin against me, okay? So there's sin and it's involved both of us, okay? I need, I need before I go admonish them, I need to seek forgiveness. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And once again, Scripture gives you a picture. I can always envision the big plank growing out of my eye as I'm going to, you know, get that speck out of somebody else's eye. Um, so if we determine we're going to go, forgive the person in prayer before going. Go to the Lord and forgive them. That helps you to be ready to grant forgiveness. When we determine we need to say something, we need to go graciously and tentatively. Again, Ken Sandy says, unless you have clear firsthand knowledge that a wrong has been done, give the other person the benefit of the doubt and be open to the possibility that you have not assessed the situation correctly. I'm aware of a situation where a pastor's wife, not one of the pastors here, 
but she was confronted. Well, they actually didn't confront her, but they went to someone else because they saw her out with a man that wasn't her husband. And so they were very upset. Rather than go just say hello to her at the restaurant and get introduced to her brother, <laughs> they went to someone else to find out who she was out with. You know, I mean, we... we we need to, you know, let's say I hear Tom screaming on the phone at somebody. I maybe need to find out, Tom, did they have a hearing problem? What's going on? You know, we need to not assume that we know. We are not God. We are not omniscient. Proverbs eighteen seventeen: the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Now, you know, if you see someone, you know, shoot somebody, well, there you go. That's an example of a clear first-hand knowledge. Well, sort of, because maybe the other person had a gun. I don't know. So just, just don't think you know everything, okay? And remember, my attitude needs to be humble and gentle and patient. So if I go and they agree with me, they see that, yes, that was sin. What do I do? Um, if they seek my forgiveness, I will grant them forgiveness. I will forgive. I will not dwell on the incident. I will not bring it up again unless admonishment is needed. I will not talk to others about it and gossip. And I will not allow this incident to stand between us or to hinder our relationship. Okay, that's easy. They've, I've, you know, I've gone to them. They've agreed. They've sought my forgiveness. Okay. What about when I go? And they don't believe it's sin. And it's within the church family. And I'm just going to have you, I'm going to write down on your sheet, um, the churches, our churches, Grace Bible Churches, Biblical Convictions, number six, deals with church discipline. You can go on the website, and and it's number six. If you, I think if you write in, type in convictions, it'll pull, it will pull them all up. Um, and it walks through Matthew 18, church, church discipline. Step one is that going to them once, okay? Then step two is involving somebody else. Now it keeps going on. They're not repentant. It continues. The sin continues. We may, at that point, need to involve the elders. Then step three is telling the church. And then after that, depending how that goes, step four is telling the church again to view that person as an unbeliever. Um, hopeful for step five, which is the person repents and comes back and we have a party, okay? So for more detail, you can go there. You can talk to the elders if you're in that kind of situation. So, okay. What do I do now this, towards this unrepentant offender? 
has God given me a pass? And now I get to sin boldly? And I can be ugly back? No. Luke 6, 27 through 36 is helpful. Um, I may want to, even though maybe they're not a, saying they're my enemy, but if I can put them in the enemy camp, because now, now if I put them in the enemy camp, guess what? I can fight and I can be ugly. Oh, no, no, no. What does God's word tell us? If they're my enemy, I need to do good to those who hate me. I need to love them. I need to pray for them. Luke 6, 27 through 36 is how I need to treat them. Um, on your handout, I need to control my tongue and continue to say only what is helpful and beneficial to others. I need to seek counsel, support, and encouragement from spiritually mature advisors. I need to, and this is hard, keep doing what is right no matter what others do to me. Recognize my limits by resisting the temptation to take revenge and by remember by remembering that being successful in God's eyes depends on faithfulness, not results. And I need to continue to love my enemy by striving to discern and address his or her needs. So I want to take a quick look at an example of conflict that we find in the Philippian church. And I love word pictures in my mind. Um, and as I read, read the story of Euodia and Syntyche, I always wonder, okay, are they in a house church? And I think one gal's over here, one gal's as far away as she can be from the other. And they're hearing this letter read, and it's kind of just going along, and Philippians is such a letter of encouragement, and they're just hearing these wonderful words from Paul, and they've got to be so excited. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And then I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. I can picture myself being in that corner going, and live in harmony. I mean, it, it's kind of terrifying to me. I mean, they had to have one of the pastors involved. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Oh, my. Paul's encouraging the pastor to get involved. I can imagine one of the elders coming saying, Anne, you need to get along. It's kind of, it, it, it makes you stop and think. Paul's instructions in Philippians 4, after telling them to get along, helps us. Okay? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious or nothing, but in everything by Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So how do you develop a godly attitude towards conflict based on Philippians 4? And this is on, on your handout. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness, your reasonableness be evident to all. Be open and teachable. Remember the Lord is near. If you're in Christ, the Lord is with you, even if it doesn't feel like he is. Replace anxiety with prayer. Seek the Lord in the midst of your conflict. And God's peace will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And then think on what's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, praiseworthy. No vain speculation. Think on the right things. And then find good role models. So, restoration and reconciliation. And this next part can, again, I wish everything was just black and white, but it isn't. Um, sometimes in peacemaking, it feels kind of gray. And it can feel like, boy, what do I do? And especially after, you know, if there's been a break in a relationship, now there's reconciliation. Sometimes you realize, wow, that wasn't the healthiest relationship anyways. I need to work to change this. Um, I just want to share on restoration and reconciliation. And this comes from Peacemaking Women, which is part of Peacemaker. It's on it used to be on their blog. Peacemaker Ministries has changed a little bit. Um, although reconciliation can sometimes take place with little or no special effort, in most cases you will need to remember the saying, if you're coasting, you must be going downhill. In other words, unless a deliberate effort is made to restore and strengthen a relationship, it will generally deteriorate. This is especially true when you are recovering from intense and prolonged conflict. Moreover, unless you take definite steps to demonstrate your forgiveness, the other person may doubt your sincerity and withdraw from you. Peacemaking Women uses this analogy. True forgiveness sets us free to work towards restoration of the relationship as often is the case, we may not feel like close friends at the end of the peacemaking process, even though we've reached a point of reconciliation. This is because the need for restoration still exists. To better understand this concept, it's helpful to make the distinction between reconciliation and restoration. Think of the analogy of a broken bone. If a leg is broken, the doctor sets the bone and the gap is healed, it's reconciled. This is what happens when someone confesses to us and we forgive her. In the same way that a freshly set bone is not ready to bear weight, a broken relationship 
newly reconciled often needs time and help to be fully restored. A broken bone might need a cast or physical therapy for complete restoration. The same thing happens to a relationship following reconciliation. It often takes prayer, time, and focused effort to build trust back into a formerly broken relationship. A good rule of thumb, the greater the fracture, the longer the recovery time. I keep thinking of Dan, <laughs> you know, with his broken leg and his neck and everything. And it's, it's, he, he didn't just get that cast off and go running. Did he? No. <laughs> Knowing Dan, he might have wanted to try. Okay. But, but think about it. It does take time. Um, just as a healed bone that never bears weight will never grow stronger, relationships that are avoided or neglected will never grow stronger. God's grace and mercy enable us to strengthen reconciled relationships. We may send cards, emails, take extra time to share a gift that truly communicates love, or any other countless acts of kindness that communicate our commitment to the relationship. Reconciliation is an event, but restoration is a process that slowly restores the relationship. So, it all sounds nice, but sometimes... We have situations where we're, we're doing those things. We're trying to restore a relationship. And maybe it's even with another believer. And they're not interested. They don't want to restore the relationship. They don't want to be reconciled. Those are tough. Um, and I think we've all been in them. And I'm looking at the clock determining what do I do okay so I'm going to share and then I'm also I don't know where Jamie where are you oh hi Jamie (laughs) I can't see um I'm I'm also going to send send these to you guys because I think this is especially where we can get in trouble and this is straight research okay I didn't write any of this but it was so well written I want to share parts of it with you but I'll send all of it to you and this comes from Carolyn Mahaney and obviously okay I'm not the only one that has these kinds of things happen she wrote three blog posts okay here's the Q&A how do I handle the pain of broken relationships and here's the question And this was written in 2015, so what is that, four years ago? I'd be grateful if you could talk about emotions in response to when we are hurt by other Christians, particularly when there has been no reconciliation. It happens, okay? And Carolyn says, few, and I'm I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read part of it, few things. Few things dredge up so much emotional pain and confusion as broken relationships with other Christians. In poetic, haunting language, the psalmist describes the acute nature of this pain. This is in the Psalms. This is Psalm 55, 12 through 14. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. 
It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. It's not an enemy in this situation that's causing David pain, okay? We know what to do about it if it's an enemy, okay? We could hide, we could bear it. And I think it's like that for us. Um, Carolyn says, the friends we welcomed into our home and into our lives, the friends we confessed sin to and worshiped with and shared the gospel alongside, these broken relationships are painful in direct proportion to how sweet they once were. In other words, give me a vicious enemy any day over a false friend. Many of you know the pain of a broken friendship. You've been through a church split and lost half your friends. A close friend has rejected you and the Christian faith. Your former friend still sits in the same pew at church but refuses to speak to you. You've had to leave a church because of the slander or persecution from other church men, members. How do we handle the jagged edges of an unreconciled relationship? How do we process the grief, guilt, regret, hurt, anxiety, confusion, and even the loss of faith? Before we do anything else, we must bring our grief to God. The answer is right here in Psalm 55. The psalmist cries out in unbearable pain over this broken relationship, and then he turns to God. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. And then she says, For it was never other Christians in whom we were called to put our faith. It is not other Christians who save us. It is God who has rescued us from the power of sin and hell, and only he can save us from the pain of these broken relationships. We must, in those situations, call to God, pour our heart out to him. And you know what? His word tells us he cares for us. Cast your cares on me, for I care for you. Um, ask for God's mercy on this relationship. Um, and then Caroline says, who, after all, knows more intimately the pain of false friends than our Savior, Jesus Christ? He's been through it, only way worse. Okay, mine is this big, it's huge, okay? Um, remember, Jesus is our comforter. Um, okay, all right, let me go for just... Um, I will send these to you. Then the next next one, I'm going to go fast. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, but I will, I'm, I'm not reading all of it. I'm reading part of it. But these, these three articles, I think, are hugely helpful. Um, so then she gives, um, what do we do? Okay, and then it is the, we resist revenge, we don't return evil for evil, we wish them well, we don't grieve at their calamities. Boy, that is a tough one, because sometimes if somebody sinned against you, um, 
you know, in in a business relationship, I I know this, you know, somebody, another company does something against your company, and then you hear, yeah, they got in a car accident. It's like, yeah, no, 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 don't do that, okay? And we can do that with our friends. Don't grieve at their calamities or our former friend. Um, We need to pray for their wealth. Fair. We need to seek reconciliation as far as it depends on you. Come to their aid in distress. Maybe that former friend, you find out down the road that they're in grave difficulties and you have an opportunity to help. That may be something the Lord would have you do. Um, then the last article that she gave reminds us again we need to turn to God for wisdom and comfort we need to obey his word in our attitude and actions and then and and I I so agree with Carolyn on this she said I want to wrap up by touching on a few practical issues related to forgiveness issues that are seldom addressed and yet are troublesome to our emotions Christians can be pretty fuzzy unforgiveness which makes this point from john piper particularly important forgiveness of an unrepentant person doesn't look the same as forgiveness of a repentant person in fact i'm not sure that in the bible the term forgiveness is ever applied to an unrepentant person so there's a sense in which full forgiveness is only possible in response to repentance That doesn't mean that I don't forgive that person vertically. Now, I don't go track them down and say, by the way, you who have sinned against me, I forgive you. I want you to know that. No, you go to the Lord. And then if that opportunity comes and they come and say, you know what, I I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? You don't say, well, I forgave you five years ago. I just need you to know that because I'm super wonderful, best Christian ever because I forgave you. We don't do that. But you know what? When they come, you can be in that place of, you know what? Yes, I forgive you because you've already dealt with it with the Lord. Okay? So what do we do when there's no repentance to respond to? Or how do we respond when someone talks and acts if they've not sinned against us? Do expressions of affection from someone who has betrayed us mean we should all go back to the way things were? In this post, I'm considering these questions in light of sins by another Christian, such as slander, hostility, cheating, stealing, lying, or deceit. Given our fuzziness on forgiveness, we need to press in and better understand what Scripture says about forgiveness and friendship, and also what it is, what it does not say. If we are to live at peace with all men, so far as it depends on us, we have to understand exactly how far it depends on us. Our question must not be, what do others expect from me? Rather, we must ask, what does God require of me? So she answers that question, um, what is forgiveness? Um, and here's 
four things she says. Forgiveness does not mean we must agree. Nowhere does scripture require us to agree in order to resolve a conflict with another Christian. We are to love them. We're to refrain from retaliation. We're to pray for them, but we're not required to agree with them. In fact, we must not agree if agreeing means violating a biblical conviction. To hold your ground on a moral or ethical issue is not unkind, unforgiving, or stubborn. But it's right. It's not unchristian, but uniquely Christian. I will say how you hold on to your biblical conviction, though, is everything. What's your attitude? Even if well-meaning people encourage us to agree for the sake of unity, we must graciously resist that pressure when biblical issues are at stake. Charles Spurgeon humorously put it this way, I have known good men with whom I shall never be thoroughly at home until we meet in heaven. At least we shall agree best on earth when they go their way and I go mine. So we don't always have to be best of friends. Um, And this is talking friendship. Okay. Um, Forgiveness doesn't mean we must trust. Sometimes people equate forgiveness with, well, now you have to trust me. No, that's not, that's not necessarily true. Piper says that we can actually say, I forgive you, but I don't trust you. And that's not rude or unforgiving. It's wise. If someone's betrayed you and shown a disregard for the truth of your reputation, you're not obligated to trust them again. And the example is given of babysitting your kids. So if a friend seriously betrays me, I am mandated as a Christian to forgive him if he asks for it. But I think I would be foolish to restore him to a position of trust. I often drew the analogy with babysitting. If someone babysat my kids but neglected them, I should forgive them if they repent, but it would be delinquent to let them babysit again. Um, Forgiveness, and this one is so tricky. Forgiveness doesn't mean we must remain close. Sometimes friendships will change, and that that can be really difficult. Um, And like I said earlier, sometimes, especially in friendship, you may find that that friendship wasn't a healthy friendship, that there were things that weren't being addressed and weren't being dealt with, um, and maybe were taken away from your family time. I mean, there, there can be some situations where then you realize, wow, this wasn't the way it should have been. Um, So there are times in a friendship that, you know, as Spurgeon talked about, they'll go their separate ways. Um, And forgiveness does mean, and this one I can be 100% clear on, forgiveness does mean we must trust God. Um, As you go through broken relationships, we need to trust God. He, he's, 
he's trustworthy and so we trust him um, the last thing from Carolyn God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up he is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ so now we're going to go through the disciplines you maybe thought that I forgot all about them which if I did then I would say I'm sorry I forgot about the disciplines I wouldn't seek your forgiveness because it was a mistake but it wasn't a mistake it's the last page um, so does this message have anything to do with the disciplines hmm well let's go through this quickly so the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts for Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So discipline one, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds their heart worshipfully towards God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. Reconciliation starts with us being reconciled to God. Okay, my first need is to be reconciled to God. I need to be a believer, okay? And then I need to pursue my relationship with God through his word, and I must remember the gospel and what Christ did for me by coming from heaven to earth living a perfect life, dying on the cross for my sin, rising from the dead, and sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for me. That's the first part, is I need to be reconciled to the Lord. Then, in the home, hmm, I don't think anybody ever has problems in their homes. They never have um, issues that need peacemaking because your homes are perfect, right? No. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with their heart fixed on God and his word. I think oftentimes our homes is where the most conflict can happen. We need to be peacemakers within our homes and with our families. And then the ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church in every part of life to shepherd others towards God and the gospel. Now I can minister to those in my household and those in the church by seeking forgiveness when I sin, forgiving others when they sin against me. I can go when I need to go, and I can receive graciously from others when they come to me. Again, I'll end with our, our theme verse for Wellspring. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Please pray with me. Father, you are a good God. Thank you for saving sinners. Lord, thank you for taking care of our debt. Lord, I do pray that we would be women who would remember what you have done and that we would walk in forgiveness, that we would 
Lord, just seek to be peacemakers, to love each other well, to love you. Lord, thank you for this day. I pray for the discussion groups. I pray that they will um, be beneficial to the ladies. In Jesus' name, amen.